Welcome to episode three of the Recap Podcast. I'm Brandon Roth. The conversation today is with Eric Hansen of JLL. He's been selling office buildings in San Francisco for the past 15 years and is part of the top performing team in the market. They sold Transamerica Pyramid Center as well as many other high profile deals. They've also been the most active group over the past 12 months selling many of the recent transactions. We covered many topics in the conversation, including tenant demand, investor underwriting criteria, the overall state of the market. So if you have any questions after listening to this, please send me an email at brandon at lakebrookcapital.com. So I, I think you and I both started in San Francisco around the same time, 2009, 2010. Yep. In order to give people context on where San Francisco is today, it would be helpful for them to first understand what the run-up was like from 2010 up until the pandemic so they can get a sense of where peak values were versus what the reset basis is today. Would you mind just going through that recap? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really... A pertinent point. I think it help, helps add a lot of perspective as to where we've been and where we were and where we are now. Uh, but yeah, I started in brokerage uh, in capital markets uh, in 2009, coming out of a job in consulting. And, you know, in a lot of ways, the market was really similar. There was a tremendous amount of disruption. It was a capital markets derived event. Um, the market froze and the market was sort of upside down. And you know, we saw in 09, I think there was maybe two or three sales that year of office buildings. And they ranged from 180 to, I want to say about 225 per square foot, right? So very similar data points to what we've seen a little bit uh, more recently in the market. And, you know, I think everyone thought that there would be this wave of distress as it related to loans and maturities and um, short sales, et cetera. And, you know, there really wasn't much. There was really only a couple that ended up happening as a result of the GFC, which I think was surprising to a lot of people. And, you know, uh, 2010, 11, things started to pick up a little bit and, and really things just took off. And I think looking back on it, you know, I didn't really know much at the time it was up and down, but looking back on it, you know, it was really derived by the leasing market. Um, when you look at what happened in San Francisco, um, you know, the apps, everything that's just, you know, commonplace today, that was all really new. And you look at some of the companies that started to grow within San Francisco during that period of time. Um, there was some of the big tech names that were out there. You know, Salesforce obviously was around and established, but you know, companies like Airbnb and Uber and Pinterest, and all that. I mean, they were they were basically nothing then. And then over the course of time, uh, ended up being massive users in the San Francisco market, going from a few thousand feet to you know nearly a million feet in some cases. And then we saw, you know, some of the big tech names like Google and Salesforce and Meta that, you know, had a presence in the market or no presence. They all got into the game as well because they wanted to have an outpost in San Francisco to be near their uh, younger employees for recruiting, et cetera. So the point is, is that the leasing market just completely took off and the capital markets followed once um, the financial markets sort of stabilized. So what we saw was those trades in the, you know, 200 to 250 a foot in 10. Uh, two or three years later, doubled. Uh, so it went to four or five hundred a foot. A couple of years later, uh, they doubled to the point of you know by you know twenty seventeen through nineteen, we were seeing uh, buildings trade on average for you know eight hundred plus a foot uh, across a variety of profiles. You know anything from trophy office towers to historic hundred year old creative buildings, and we saw 
uh, you know, probably close to 20 trades north of a thousand a foot, you know, some new construction. Uh, you know, most notably, we saw a few vacant buildings trade for over a thousand a foot uh, with the thesis that you could buy it vacant, do some work, plug in a hundred dollar rent. And uh, that was the market. And it was, you know, the fundamentals in 19 were, you know, roughly 5% vacancy across the entire market, uh, average rents uh, in the low 90s across the entire market. So it was an incredible run up that, you know, obviously when COVID hit, just the uh, the party stopped per se. Right. And then so after COVID, let's just go maybe to the 2020 to 2023 time period. What does that look like for the last three years? Yeah. I mean, obviously the world stopped. Um and no one really knew what was up and down. Obviously, 2020 was a year of, you know, a massive uh, sort of freezing, try, trying to understand what this all meant. No one really knew uh, for, for anything, but in particular office, you know, whereas uh, hospitality and retail felt the impacts right away, uh, office did not. Um, people were not coming to the offices, um, you know, across different regions and all that for, you know, policy or whatever it might be. I think we all knew that this meant something, but it was impossible to know. Um, I think, you know, looking back, you know, we all thought, hey, you know, we're going to go home for a couple of weeks that became a couple of months. And then it just changed the entire dynamic. Uh, so 2020 was still figuring that out. And, and we saw quite a few trades in 2020 that were kind of a carryover from pre-COVID times. Um, some longer, you know, longer lease term or Walt deals still traded. And there was still a fairly liquid market. And that kind of continued into 21. Obviously, because the capital markets and debt markets were still incredibly credos, liquid interest rate, you know, the, the indexes were virtually zero. So you could still sort of engineer deals at that point in time. And as things kind of went on, I think there was more and more realization that the world uh, had changed related to office, right? And uh, whatever the, the new normal was, uh, was not going to be the same as it was in 2019. And I think in San Francisco and the Bay Area in specific, it was a lot more severe than uh, other metros or other markets in the country that you know has continued to today. Um, and obviously, when interest rates started to rise in 2022, that was kind of the that was a that was a big event because you had fundamental issues on the user side and on the demand side that still were unclear and still are unclear, mixed with rapidly rising interest rates. Uh, that just really was a really potent mixture for transaction activity. So. Uh, as 22 um, carried on and into 23, there was there was very very little transactions in the market. I mean, the market effect froze um, into the early part of 2023. So very challenging uh, to you know understand where we were going to get out of this. And you know we that are a little bit more on the front end of transactions knew that it was not good for values, um, but it takes time. And when there's no data points to point to or what all that and and uh, understanding what that looks like. No one really wants to transact. People don't want to be the first to move on the buy side and people don't want to be the first to move on the sell side. So it creates a really uh, challenging environment. Um, but what we finally saw uh, early last year and really throughout the course of 2023 was that that freeze um, thawed. So we ended up seeing plus or minus trend, 10 transactions last year, about 500 million in total value, which doesn't feel like a lot, but uh, but it is uh, related to you know their overall uh, environment, and that finally helped establish pricing of you know what do uh, what are vacant uh, you know high vacancy to fully vacant you know more value add deals worth now in this new paradigm, and you know the general consensus that's in the two to three hundred a foot range um, where most of the comps fell last year. So 
Uh, it's painful, a um, lot of hard conversations, but you know, any market needs that to happen. They need that reset to happen so people can understand where value is. There's comps on the board and people have to make, you know, the hard business decisions to sell on that side. And then obviously uh, buyers, you know, feel more comfortable if there's a market and that they're not going to be the the silly first mover or whatever you might call it. And, and, and really we saw a lot more buyers emerge as the year went on, which is encouraging uh, as we sit here today as well. Right. And when buyers are looking at a vacant building, do you have a sense of how they're underwriting a pro forma looking forward in terms of lease up assumptions and rents? Now, what's going into that analysis when they back into what their purchase price is going to be? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, institutional way of underwriting of, you know, using Argus and putting in assumptions and solving to a levered return or a levered IRR, et cetera, is really challenging. It has been, it continues to be because as we know, you can put a million assumptions into your model and a lot of it is still, um, you know, educated guesswork at best right now, given the challenges in the leasing market. So ultimately what we're really seeing is, is kind of back to the fundamentals, hyper-focus, you know, stock pickers mentality related to locations. It's related to specific buildings and it's really a, a focus on basis. So it's, you know, can I buy a building for 60, 70% off of what it would have traded for in 2018 or 2019? That feels good. Can I buy a building for 70% off of replacement costs? That feels good. Um, and ultimately the buyers we, you know, have seen with that mentality, especially early on, were you know, more of the high net worth, you know, family office type of individuals who could look at a business plan for a 10 plus year hold. So, uh, that was their base case. And if things, you know, roar back tremendously, they could make a decision of selling early or putting, you know, refinancing or putting debt on it. Cause these things are all cash. Um, but it's really just a focus on sort of the, the basic fundamentals and inherent value in real estate. And a belief that San Francisco is going to you know, come out of this uh, better, obviously, than it is today. Right. And can we pull up that aerial and go through some of the specifics on, on what's been happening over the last couple of years? I, I can pull it up. Um, one second. Hopefully this we're able to see this. Can you see that screen? I, can see. I sure can. I, I think what would be helpful to understand is maybe just, you know, how this has evolved. Because we did talk about how it started to unthaw in early 2023. And I think you can see that example where it appears the first trade is Sobrato buying one Harrison, right? Because that was February. And then how the market evolved from there over the course of the year. Yeah, it's it's interesting because that was sort of the first one to hit. And that one is pretty unique. Um, they purchased that from Gap Corporation, so a corporate seller, which was definitely a theme of some of the first um, trades or, or properties that came to market. Um, it's right on the Embarcadero waterfront. It's a very unique, special piece of property. So the price per square, per square foot on that was uh, certainly higher than you're going to see on a lot of these other comps, but it's probably one of the you know more unique buildings and locations in the city. So um, the the metrics on that were a little different. And then some of the other ones that you know um, received a lot of you know press or publications were 550 California Street that uh, Wells Fargo brought to market. And 350 California Street that uh, Union Bank also brought to market, and those were corporate sales, you know, predominantly vacant, um, you know, former sort of corporate HQ type buildings that, um, you know, needed some amount of work. And the business plans, you know, kind of differ amongst all of these comps, which is kind of fascinating in its own right. And then I think another one that got a lot of sort of notoriety was 60 Spear, which we were involved with, which was actually an institutional seller that decided to sell down out of some of their portfolio of, of office. 
Um, and that one, again, is it's a really kind of unique location down on Spear Street. Um, the building has water views, et cetera. Um, and that was for us sort of, you know, what we kind of think is sort of the bottom um, in that people really realize that, hey, this is a building that's, again, you know, significantly discounted off of what it would have traded for pre-COVID. They liked the real estate. They liked the location. And for us, we saw over 10 bids on it initially. We had a, you know, competitive process and ended up selling to a group that has, you know, a longer term view on the market. And in, in this case, are going to spend a significant amount of capital upgrading the building and really trying to turn it into sort of a boutique trophy asset and, and lead into the higher end of the market where we've seen a lot of data um, on the leasing front that seems to support that, that if you build something unique and special, you will be able to lease it and sort of perform. Um, so there's a wide variety of uh, trades, uh, business plans, et cetera, which is all sort of fascinating. But once all those started to hit, I think everyone sort of woke up, um, you know, kind of across the country of, hey, San Francisco kind of feels like it's on sale. And if we can get in on this now, um, you know, that'll be an interesting bet to make. And to some extent, that sort of FOMO mentality um, set it in as well is that they didn't want to miss this opportunity to to make a bet in a market that always showed ability to bounce back, you know, significantly after these hiccups, whether it's .com or GFC and now uh, the pandemic. Right. And when you look at a deal like 350 Cal that uh, SKS and SWIG purchased for just over $200 per square foot, do you have a sense of what they're looking to as their all-in basis once the property is renovated? Is there a certain dollar amount in mind? I'm just wondering, are these guys getting to you know, $400 a square foot all-in, for example? Yeah, I mean, in, in general... Uh, our understanding of their business plan is to try to control their costs as much as possible and to really play the basis game, if you will, is to you know not spend $150, $200 a square foot on TIs throughout the building or a massive base building upgrade, but to you know maintain their basis as low as they can to, to do deals and leasing deals at you know lower numbers, obviously, than, than uh, sort of the, the pre-pandemic rents or whatever that they could have gotten there. So but again, they have flexibility. The, the Swig family has been investing in San Francisco for over, what, over 50 years at least. So they have a very long-term approach of the assets that they're involved with. They've owned for a very long time. And I think that kind of, you know, plays the point is, you know, hey, base case, we're going to try to do leasing, uh, fill up the building as much as we can, uh, you know, get it to 70, 80% leased over the next five years. And, and that's great. But if there's a an opportunity for them to meet a market and spend a little bit more money to push rents. I think they'll consider that as well. But I think that flexibility and not being uh, sort of, you know, sort of backed into a five-year business plan or whatnot is ultimately what gave them confidence that, hey, if I could buy a building right in the middle of California Street in the financial district, a high rise, that's you know, overall in good condition has had a lot of base building work done to it for this price, you know, that feels good. It feels hard to go wrong there. Um, so I think they're excited about it. And they've actually done a little bit of leasing there um, out of the gates as well, which you know I think kind of plays into their business plan initially. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting example of somebody who purchased a building at a new reset basis, and they're able to sign leases right away. So if rents were $90 per square foot before the pandemic, where do you think rents are today for leases that are getting done? Yeah, it, it, that's a great question. And it's something that we're talking to our clients a lot about is, um, it was kind of an anomaly when you look back on it now where effectively average rents across San Francisco were low 90s. And that would be, you know, class A towers right in the middle of downtown with views. And that would be lower rise buildings in the Western part of Selma or mid market. Um, so in a, in a way that didn't really make sense. Like when you compare it to Manhattan, for example, there's parts of Manhattan 
pre-COVID that would lease for $40, $50 a square foot. And then there's parts of Manhattan that would lease for 200 a foot. You know, there was very, very different segmentation within that market. And San Francisco didn't really have that just because our vacancy is 5%, it's a smaller market, et cetera. So what that means for today is I think we're going to be see a, a much wider band of rents. Um, for example, the top 10, even 20 buildings in the market with water views, amenities, great locations are still getting, you know, pre-COVID, if not higher than COVID rents in some cases, which really, again, plays out to what I mentioned earlier, the sort of flight to quality, best assets um, thesis, if you will. And then the really, you know, average to low tier buildings, whether it's, you know, the building quality or location, um, are the rents are dropping significantly. You know, we've heard comps in the, you know, 40s, 50s, et cetera. So I think that's where it gets to the different business plans and thesis of, you know, in the case of 350Cal, I think they're, they would be fine signing $50, $60 leases, which are, you know, a discount of where they were, but it makes sense given their basis and it works for a business plan. In the case of 60 Spear, they're going to spend a ton of money to stabilize the property to make it extremely unique and just go absolutely bonkers on amenities. And they're going to obviously need and drive to, you know, higher rents to make that business plan work. Um, you know, people can argue about what's a better thesis or business plan, and I'm not going to take a position there, but it'll, it will be interesting to look out two, three years down the road to see what's working and what's not. I hope they both work uh, for the sake of the market, but that's, I think you're going to see much more of sort of a stratification in terms of rents, business plans, et cetera, go out for. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And it feels like there are, you know, two different strategies here. There are vacant buildings or, or mostly vacant buildings that are being sold in the low 200s per square foot, or maybe 300 per square foot. But then if you look at other deals where there is a tenant in place paying a decent rent, like 123 Townsend that Rubicon purchased, uh, and that's 533 per square foot. Yeah. Can you just touch on maybe the difference between those two different investment strategies and what people are focused on when they're buying a deal that has a tenant in place and what they're paying attention to and what cash flow metrics they're they're looking for? Yeah, I mean, you know, in that case, you did have an, an anchor tenant that had, you know, just over six years, I believe, of, of term left. So it's a pretty good duration with that cash flow left with some credit behind them. And, and ultimately, you know, it's balancing out, you know, what's a fair, you know, cap rate to play uh, or to pay for that asset. What's your mark to market cap rate? So it's analyzing the in-place rent versus what they believe rent is today. Um, it used to be that, you know, your mark to market was up. Now it's, you know, in most cases down. And that it's obviously sort of saying, that, does this price per square foot make sense? And in that case, they did receive seller financing from the seller, which really helped facilitate that transaction. And, and ultimately, we, we've seen some examples of that with cash flowing assets. Um, you know, sellers are offering that as a way to create liquidity and to sell down assets, you know, part of their overall strategy. And then buyers look at it as, hey, if I can sort of get favorable financing with cash flow, I can sort of engineer a cash on cash return that's uh, you know, kind of interesting. So when you look at the, the the price per square foot, for example, the amount of cash flow they'll be able to pull out of it during the term of that lease, kind of, you know, we call it buying their basis down. So what by the time the lease matures, their sort of uh, financial basis or engineered basis will be much lower than that, you know, acquisition basis. So it's just different strategies, you know, we're seeing. And I think it's it's interesting, right? Because we're seeing a lot of creativity, both from sellers and buyers to try to uh, make transactions happen, get them done. And it's encouraging to see again in 23 and now going into this year that, you know, people are looking for ways to do deals, not ways for not to do deals. And again, that's a sign of a healthier market 
where you see sellers, you know, capitulating, trying to be creative, and then buyers obviously trying to find ways to make a bet. And that's what we've been waiting and wanting to see on the market. Right. And I'm noticing here that you've sold 600 towns in East in September, and you just awarded 600 towns in West recently. Any change maybe over those, you know, five months um, from the market, given how many other deals had traded in between and, and what the market appetite has been. And it feels like it's sort of evolving over the last few months. Yeah. Um, I would say once that first wave of transactions closed in the early to middle part of 2023, I feel like sort of the the bell rang or the alarm went off of people said, Oh wow, you know, San Francisco, there's, there's deals happening. And we really saw a big change, you know, particularly from buyers. Um, our bid sheet started to, fill out, you know, as I mentioned, was 60 Spear, you know, over 10 bids. 12 months before that, we would have been shocked to get over 12 or uh, 10 bids on a deal. So we just saw a lot more buyers come into the market. Um, and that was, as I mentioned earlier, it was really a lot of high net worths, which there still are in, in the market, but we saw more local operators, um, institutions, even foreign capital in some cases come into the market, which was really surprising to see, I guess, this earlier, this early on in sort of the, the next phase of the cycle. Um, but there was just an overall change in sentiment. So, you know, those two buildings are right next to each other, sort of different situations and profiles. But um, it, 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 that, that was the main theme is, is just sort of this change in sentiment of instead of the falling knife, I think people felt that a bottom had been formed and that's where you need to start. And, uh, you know, we anticipate that to continue as we move forward uh, into 24. Right. And I, I agree. I think you will continue to see that change. I think you know, there are a lot of groups now that are aware of a San Francisco office basis play and they see that the market's already bottomed out and it's starting to come back up in terms of, of what the new prices uh, per square foot are for the most recent transaction. So I definitely believe it's picking up momentum. On that front, what are you seeing from a tenant demand perspective? There's a lot of talk about AI tenants, for example. Is that currently driving the market in terms of new leasing or, or is it going beyond AI companies? Yeah, I mean, I think that gets into the thesis of San Francisco and what people are, you know, excited about and buying into is that, you know, AI is definitely the the buzzword right now for sure when it comes to the tenant market. And, you know, our, our answer is this, is it's exciting. We're lucky to have what people view as sort of the next evolution or wave of technology, which is AI, you know, effectively based in San Francisco with sort of the household names headquartered in the market. You know, everyone saw the news with OpenAI and Anthropic and and such taking big pieces of of, of uh, space last year and over a million feet, I think, of total leasing, which is great news for the market. Um, on the other hand, we have thirty, you know, mid thirty percent vacancy in the market, so you know, close to a uh, thirty million feet. So uh, a million feet's not going to do it, but to have that in the market is absolutely a positive, but it's going to take sort of all fronts for the for the market to sort of stabilize and return to a healthy nature. So it's going to take big tech getting through their sort of space rationalization, which we think is is happening is pretty close to sort of being done with in the near term. Um, but, you know, big tech, the, the companies I mentioned that have always or have always or have grown significantly in the market need to be continue to be a big player in the market going forward. And, and we think that generally that'll be the case, that there still is a, you know, a case to be in San Francisco. And, you know, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, a million feet last year, um, we definitely have tenants in the market today 
Um, it's not quite, you know, the demand. I, I don't think we're expecting a million feet to be leased in, in the next couple months, but it's rapidly evolving and uh, their space needs are evolving. And there's a lot of discussion about how, you know, again, if you're a, a company trying to grow, just like it's always been that, you know, building and growing a company, it's hard to do that if you're not all in the office together, working, collaborating, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we're encouraged by what we're seeing. Um, there's a lot of work to, to be done. We're not there yet, but um, San Francisco, once again, seems to be the place where the next, you know, uh, evolution of technology and change is, is sort of based. And, you know, that's what people look at is, you know, we've seen this happen before. Um, you know, there's a, there's a belief that it could happen again. And you mentioned 30 million square feet is vacant, but with your earlier comments about the flight to quality and, you know, record high rents and trophy buildings, I would assume that that vacancy is more concentrated in class B and C buildings and less so in class A. Is that fair? Yeah. Uh, you know, at JLO, we've done a tremendous amount of studies, you know, both within our capital markets group, specific to office and research, et cetera, working with our leasing teams and all that to really, you know, understand what we believe the market's going to look like, you know, today and going forward. And I think to my point earlier is you, it's, it's just, you really have to dissect and study the market in a, in a very, very specific and focused way at this point in time. Uh, the data we have on hand shows that, you know, the top buildings in the market, we kind of track the top 20 based on location, views, et cetera. You know, they've hovered around 10% vacancy through COVID. Uh, that's that's strong. And a lot of them, you know, are, again, are, are achieving rents par or, or above where they were uh, pre-COVID, which is also, I mean, that's that's amazing da data to really, you know, absorb and understand. And we also look at parts of the market, you know, sub-markets that are just more challenged um, that, benefited from sort of the upswing in the market uh, pre-COVID that, you know, we think are going to be, they're going to take much longer to recover. It'll be take much longer to see positive absorption. And, you know, quite frankly, some of those sub-markets and buildings we, we view as sort of separate them from the overall market for a period of time. So, you know, we, we call the, the San Francisco market roughly 90 million feet. But if you start to, you know, sort of dissect it and take some of those out, you know, the market's going to get a lot smaller in the near term. Um, so it's really just about studying these things in a really uh, uh, thoughtful way to see how you know certain buildings, submarkets, streets, blocks are going to perform. And I think that'll be the theme in the near future. Um, it's not a momentum market. It's still very much a market of of trying to you know make a smart bet based on a lot of the data that we have on hand. And I was talking to a, an investor that's located in New York, but looking at office deals across the country. And one comment that they had was that they're currently seeing a lot of activity in the five to 10,000 square foot space for tenants. And also noting that when they look at co-working spaces, that they're all completely full. So showing that there's demand for maybe these smaller companies that need less space than some of the big tech companies. In San Francisco, are you guys seeing something similar about with the five to 10,000 square foot range? Yeah, that that is a theme that we're hearing more and more of from our leasing partners and colleagues is there is a lot of growth from these companies that, you know, they might be starting a business that they were all remote and they now know that they need to gather and they don't want to make a massive bet. You know, again, pre-COVID, you saw a lot of situations where a company might only need 5,000 feet, but they there were no options. So they're being forced to take 10 or 20 for, to accommodate future growth. So no one's really doing that right now. They're, everyone's being extremely thoughtful about their capital spend and it's, you know, it's derived from the VC markets and everything going on in the greater, you know, economic and capital markets of everyone's just being very thoughtful and smart about how they're spending their money uh, and, and, you know, not making decisions on a pure speculation. So we are seeing a lot of growth 
in that market. And I think it's important to remember, specific to San Francisco, that historically speaking, San Francisco has always really been a five to 10,000, maybe five to 15,000 tenant market. It was really, you know, the strength of the market historically was, was the financial services industries and, you know, the fire tenants. So that's always been kind of the, the core of our market. And then it really became a big tech town um, in the last 10 years leading into the pandemic. So uh, to see that as, you know, it's encouraging and sort of, I think, aligns with, you know, San Francisco, how it's historically performed. Um, but again, we are seeing some of the bigger requirements out there. Again, you know, to see OpenAI take a 400,000 fl- uh, plus, uh, you know, sublease last year. I mean, that's big. Um, there was a lot of that happening. I mean, the new coming become kind of became commonplace in the in the market uh, pre-pandemic to see, you know, three, five, 700,000 foot leases, but that was sort of more of the anomaly. Um, so we're seeing it on both sides. And again, that's sort of what creates a healthier uh, tenant demand market out there. And there was an article this morning about Deutsche Bank requiring their managing directors to be in the office four days a week instead of three days a week. So are you guys seeing anything from a work from home perspective in terms of changing trends about people coming back to the office in the city? Yeah, I mean, obviously we at JLL feels like everyone related in, in our business and in our industry has, has followed that extremely closely over the last few years because it's, you know, a very important indicator of what you know, office demand and, and future requirements will look like. But it seems to be a theme we're seeing more and more of uh, as time goes by as sort of this, you know, post-COVID world environment. Um, pe- people, it just, there was no, there was no, uh, recipe for how to do it. Everyone was trying to figure it out, uh, as they went based on their, you know, company culture, policy, where their employees lived, how they got, you know, where they commuted to work and everyone. So yeah, everyone's been trying to figure it out, but it does seem that there is more of a, you know, momentum, uh, to say, look, you know, to, to have a strong business, to maintain a business, to build a business, we have to have an in-person collaboration. And I think in a lot of the cases is, if you're a leader at a company or a manager and you're um, asking your employees or those that work you know, for or with you to come in three, four days a week, but you aren't, um, that's not leadership. That's not setting a good example. So I, I think we're seeing more of that as well as that you have to put your, you know, your money where your mouth is or whatever it might be. So it's not going to all happen at once. I think everyone now is, uh, there's no more expectations that, you know, post Labor Day or whatever, it might be some, some date that, you know, the, the, Things are going to change on on the snap of a finger, but we are continuing to see more of that happening, um, which I think gives people confidence that sort of the the return to the mean that we've all been waiting for a little bit as well is sort of uh, it's happening uh, over time. But it's just it's taking taking a while. It's just not it's not going to happen overnight. It takes time for that stuff to sort of re re rationalize or renormalize uh, that we're all no one's really been through something like this before. And my sense of it was that given how tech concentrated San Francisco was from a tenant base and the tech industry being the ones that are slower to return to office and are more friendly towards remote work, that it just makes it more challenging for San Francisco specifically in terms of bringing people back into the city and increasing occupancy compared to other markets. Like if you look across Texas, for example, where there's uh, other more diverse you know, employment base and it's not so tech concentrated, that uh, those markets seem to, to be more occupied at the moment. Yeah, no, I, that, that's right. Um, San Francisco, as I mentioned earlier, was, you know, historically speaking, you know, more of a finance hub, um, law, et cetera. Um, those types of tenants are the ones that have, you know, been coming back to the office and, and continued to go back to the office where a lot of the technology companies, uh, their policies were much different. 
um, that, you know, to some extent, some of them saw some benefit in a distributed or remote workforce. And there's a lot of reasons why, whether it's related to their actual core business or for recruiting, uh, when the when the job market was extremely tight a couple of years ago, you know, employees would you know say, "I'll take a job," but you the the conditions are I have to be able to work from anywhere. And if you didn't have any other options in your recruiting, you they would say, "Okay," because they would have to hire someone. So there was just a lot of reasons why. Uh, but I think a lot of the technology companies in specific had motivations or ability to be much more distributed or remote um, that they leaned into. And we've seen change in that, uh, driven a lot by big tech. And again, I think it's just, you know, from a business case, I think most people would agree that, um, you know, having people in the office at some point, whether it's two, three, two days, three days, whatever it might be, is good for the business. It's good for culture. Um, those who want to, you know, younger, younger workforce, those who want ability to learn and be mentored and FaceTime, et cetera. I mean, can't do that remote. So again, I, I don't try to take too, uh, too stringent of a stance on it because I don't want to get yelled at by uh, this person or that person. But um, but I think there's you know some ways of thinking about it that um, again that sort of rationalization or sort of return to the mean and sort of feels like where we're headed in general. No, I agree with you. And within San Francisco, are you finding certain submarkets to be outperforming others in a meaningful way? Yeah, it, what what we're seeing is. The core CBD seems to be benefiting the most. So it's North Financial District, South Financial District, sort of surrounding Market Street. Um, that's where, you know, while uh, public transit use is still down significantly, you know, we're led to Barton, Muni, et cetera. That's where they're centered around, you know, having that access is important. That's where, even though a lot of our retail amenities have been suffering a bit uh, post, post-pandemic, that's where a lot of the amenities and, you know, bars, restaurants, et cetera, are. Uh, so we've seen better performance there. And when you go into downtown San Francisco, and uh, I could be the first to tell you that it's it's uh, it feels a lot better than people most people think. Um, that's where a lot of the activity, foot traffic is uh, as well. Uh, and one other submarket that's continues to you know get a lot of headlines is Jackson Square, which is a smaller boutique submarket kind of right outside of the financial North Financial District. And I think when you go to a submarket like that, it's got you know really nice character. Uh, it's kind of the old Barbary Coast, some really interesting buildings. We've seen a lot of VC firms open up offices there, some tech firms. It's always been sort of a, a media advertising submarket. So you just have a lot of different tenants. You've seen a lot more retail there. It's closer to the northern part of town where a lot of people live or Marin. So it just made sense. And it's a very small submarket. So inherently, you know, any kind of you know outsized demand is going to make that the fundamentals in that submarket much stronger. I asked a few people on LinkedIn if they had any questions for you. I'm going to throw some at you. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. And obviously this is you know, a ridiculous question, but I'm sure you get it all the time when people are asking you, is the office market dead? Is it coming back? But I mean, I think you and I both know that it is, but I, since you probably have to repeat that so many times, you know, how are you, you uh, portraying that to people? No, I mean, we have gotten that question and, and you know, you could read a million articles uh, now about people pontificating about the future of office, whether it's dead or not. And um, there's so many factors that go into it, but you know, the, the, the data is what we try to focus on, right? Is you can speculate you can say, oh, it's dead um, or it's not, but the data is what's important, which we've hit on is that there's absolutely evidence that certain buildings, flight to quality, et cetera, are absolutely performing well and benefiting. So 
that part of the market, albeit much smaller, is very much healthy and a lot. Um, then you get into just the overall demand side and space usage side that, again, it's just taking longer to rationalize and understand what it looks like, but all the trends seem to be playing to that, you know, going in a positive direction as it relates to office. Um, and I think it's just really important is, as I mentioned, you know, GLL, we have a lot of different studies of tiered buildings and subsets of, you know, looking at performance going forward. And I think if I, you know, if someone made me answer the question right now is that you're going to see effectively office markets, not only in San Francisco, but across the country, shrink for, you know, overall stock, stock shrink for the near term and maybe for the long term, right? Is that if there's 10 or 15 million feet of sort of BEC product that was never really great to begin with, that owners are not going to put any money into, uh, those could sit vacant and fallow for many, many years to come. And whether it's, you know, there's a lot of talk about conversions or whatnot. I mean, that'll be a little bit part of the game, but I do think that there will be a shrinking in the office market. There's going to be a flight to quality, um, but it's not dead. And then that's, you know, that's what the data suggests right now. And uh, you know, my answer in a year's time could be different, but that's, I feel pretty confident saying that right now about, you know, certain segments of the market. No, I think that's a great answer. Um, and if somebody asked for buildings that are multi-tenant office buildings and mostly occupied at higher rents that are, you know, pre-pandemic rent levels and new rents are getting signed at probably 50% of those levels. So your NOI is going to be declining as tenants are rolling. How are investors thinking about that when they're uh, calculating their purchase price? Are they focused on some kind of return as their NOI is going to be declining over the coming years? Yeah, and, and it's going to be different, right? And in, in every situation, you know, to the previous point is some of them might have pre-pandemic rents. And if it's a trophy building, they might be keeping rent the same or maybe even increasing rent. But I understand the question. It's the going in cap rate is a question we always get when you know, raisers calls, whatever it is. And it's it's always a really tough metric as it relates to office. And I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but it's it's never the perfect indicator of um, of value because it can... It, there's so many factors that go into it, except for a long-term single tenant deal. But they're looking at going in cap rate, especially right now, is do you have a you know a, a nice significant yield in the near term? And then they look at the role um, when uh, when leases are rolling, the the wall to the weighted average lease term, and they're looking at what the mark-to-market rents are. So it's really a return on cost metric. So it's either a three or five-year metric of saying, whatever the cap rate is I buy today, what am I going to stabilize this building at? And it's your purchase price plus all the costs to stabilize, which is TIs, base building work commissions. And they're looking for that metric, which is an unlevered metric, which is really important. Uh, Pre-pandemic, uh, the underwriting was a th uh, year three return on cost in the six to six and a half range. Uh, today, it's much higher. It's closer to 10%. That's a point in time where you have uh, so many factors that we've discussed, it's driving, you know, lower values, much more conservative underwriting. I think that'll come in as, as things progress, but obviously that's a, a very elevated re uh, metric, but that is, that's a key thing that people look to because it, I think really helps evaluate risk of, of their business bank going forward. And obviously when you plug all that into their model, it ends up, you know, spitting out the price per square foot that we're talking about today. Um, so that's kind of the general way of thinking about it. And when new tenants are looking at citing a lease, Given how much lower rents are today than they were a few years ago, are they signing long-term leases to lock it in for ten years, or are they still doing? Are they doing shorter-term leases? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's obviously a tenant's market. Um, there are the tenant rep brokers and stuff are educated on the market, and they, and they know that they have a lot of leverage and a lot of you know power in these discussions. So, 
you know, I, I was on a panel last week with a, a tenant broker that said, you know, they're basically asking for everything um, and seeing what the landlords agree to. Um, but there's no common theme related to a uh, term. Um, we're, I, I think in, in today's world, we're still seeing, you know, more of a desire to have flexibility, which is, you know, we want to sign a shorter term lease because we just don't really know what our space needs might, might be in the future. Um, I think when you go back to the GFC, we did see quite a few examples of people locking in 10 year deals because they knew the market was depressed and they wanted to take advantage and they had a pretty clear line of sight of what the space demand would be. People don't have as much of that clarity today. Um, there's been a general thought that people are decreasing their space needs by you know 10 to 20%, but that's today. And given everything we're discussing, that could be different in a year. So I think that sort of near term flexibility seems to be more of what I'm hearing you know, out there in the market right now. And the final question here, if a building with a steady credit worthy income stream went to market, what cap rate would it clear at? Because we're trying to find out what's the valuation for stabilized buildings versus these value add deals. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and again, variety of factors, um, it's length of the lease term, it's the tenant and are they investment grade credit or are they, you know, startup back credit? I mean, all that is extremely important. Um, my answer to you is, you know, not only regionally, but nationally, given, and it, again, it all really um, triangulates off of where interest rates are and where the cost of debt is. You know, generally speaking, you know, it fluctuates based on uh, even this week. I mean, everything blew out of you know, the index side, but, um, you know, what we're hearing is sort of best to the best debt for something like that would be in the, you know, mid six range generally. Um, so the cap rate, generally speaking, needs to be uh, spread above that. So, uh, it's, if it's something that's really, really desirable, bulletproof, you know, it might be 25, 50 basis points, so high six to seven, but, you know, probably more in the low sevens. But my answer today was different two weeks ago, and it'll probably be different now. Um, but we're in an elevated environment, um, you know, going back to what I mentioned back in, you know, 2021, where interest rates were so low, we were seeing core product with single tenant core product trade in the, in some cases, you know, mid to high fours and uh, low fives. So, and again, that's just an example of what the increase uh, increase in interest rates has done to the you know single tenant cap rate there. Uh, but it's a point in time. Hopefully it'll get better going forward. Right. And for the sales that we talked about that have traded over the last year and a half, are any of those getting financed or are they basically, are they mostly being purchased all cash? The vast majority are all cash right now because when you're looking at a value add predominantly vacant building, the pretty much uh, the only source of capital is through a a debt fund, which is you know so for plus five to six hundred. So you're talking about eleven, you know, ten to eleven percent money, depended on uh, where the index is at that point in time. So that's extremely expensive. And why that's so punitive is if you're buying a vacant building, you know, you can buy it for two hundred bucks a foot. Hey, that feels great. But if you have to feed that debt for two years at 11%, that starts to eat into your basis right away. And that's the, you kind of on the clock day one. And that's just given all of the things we've talked about, the risk factors and making that bet to also have this really expensive debt you're, that you're worried about. It's just too much. So most of those have been financed all cash or uh, have been done with all cash and, and no financing. There have been a couple of examples of some debt that has been incurred. For example, 180 Howard, um, they did get a loan on that. And mainly is because there was a partial leaseback from the seller on that that effectively covered the the debt service on that uh, for the near term. So those are the situations that I mentioned on one, two, three towns, and that was the seller financing. But we've seen, you know, pretty much, you know, eighty to ninety percent of the deals are all cash, and they will be for 
the foreseeable future in most cases until there's a more you know liquid accretive debt market for for office out there that's great thank you eric really appreciate you taking the time to do all of this yeah good to see you man yeah likewise